0: In the early hours of November 30th, 2012, police responded to an emergency call from a house in Monte Sereno in Silicon Valley. Some men had broken into the house and tied up the owner, Ravish Kumra, and his ex-wife, Harinder. Then the intruders started searching for valuables. After they'd left, Harinder managed to free herself and call 911, but Ravish was declared dead at the scene. He'd suffocated after being gagged with duct tape. Investigators went over the house carefully, looking for evidence, But the intruders had made a concerted effort not to leave any fingerprints or DNA. They'd worn latex gloves and had washed the insides of them with soapy water before discarding them. But the investigators did manage to find DNA at the crime scene, including some under the victim's fingernails. And when the DNA samples were run through the California State DNA Database, it produced three matches.
1: We're used to thinking that if a DNA match has been found, then it's an open and shut case. Surely that's the end of the story. But in this case, it was just the beginning.
2: If there's DNA evidence in a case, people just generally feel like, well, that's it's said and done. It's like we figured it out. We solved the case.
1: This is Katie Worth, a PBS reporter who covered the story.
2: Unlike most forensic evidence... DNA evidence is actually based on science and came from the world of science. That's the closest thing that we can come to, like a truth serum, you know. However, that doesn't mean that DNA evidence is infallible.
0: These three DNA matches found at the crime scene in Monte Sereno were from three men who all lived nearby in the Bay Area. DNA from one of them, D'Angelo Austin, was found on the duct tape. DNA from a second, Javier Garcia, was found on the discarded gloves. And DNA from the third, Lucas Anderson, was found under the victim's fingernails. Cell phone records also showed that two of the men had been near the crime scene on the night in question. But this case is all about
1: the third man, Lucas Anderson, whose story is not so simple. It's about the power and the pitfalls of DNA profiling. Our own version of a true crime episode, if you like. This case highlights the dangers of assuming that a new forensic technology is flawless. And if you look back at the history of forensics, it turns out that this isn't the first time this has happened. From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. Glad to be here. And uh, it's a neighborhood in South London that has a slightly sketchy reputation, I suppose. Possibly going back to the fact that Christopher Marlowe, the, uh, the poet and playwright, was, was murdered in a pub in Deptford in 1593.
0: It's, it's had some time to graduate from that rep, hasn't it? <laughs> it looks very vibrant and lovely where we are. Exactly. So it's, it's a happening
1: part of town, but what interests us, and the reason we've come to this particular shop here, which is 34
0: Deptford High Street,
1: is that this was the site of a murder in 1905.
0: It doesn't look particularly murderous right now. It's, it's like a little store where you can make international calls and do worldwide money transfers. Well, back in the day, it was a chandler shop, and that meant you could buy
1: oil and paint and candles and so on. And just like today, there was a shop on the ground floor and then upstairs there's a flat where the shopkeeper can live. Let's go back to the morning of March the 27th, 1905 and that was a Monday morning and the assistant who worked at the shop showed up for work early that day as he always would and found Thomas Farrow, the shopkeeper, had been bludgeoned to death, basically. He was lying in a pool of blood on the ground floor. And his wife, Anne, who was still upstairs, uh, she had severe head injuries. And um, in fact, she died four days later. And the cash box of the shop had been opened and emptied. Also at the scene, two masks were found, which were essentially old stockings. People had obviously pulled them over their heads, So that suggested there'd been two attackers... And a single thumbprint was found at the scene by one of the investigating officers on the inside of the cash box.
0: So they called in the the 1905 equivalent of the
1: CSI team, I guess. Well, it just happened that one of the investigating officers in this particular case had been one of the members of the committee that had recommended the setting up of a fingerprint department for the Metropolitan Police. Now, at the time, when they set up the fingerprint bureau, it wasn't to identify fingerprints from crime scenes. It was just so that when you arrested someone, you could fingerprint them and you could match them to their criminal records. And then if you arrested someone again, you could tell if it was the same person. But what was interesting about this case is that the head of the fingerprint bureau said, hang on a minute, in this case, we've got a fingerprint from the scene. So maybe we could use the fingerprints in a different way, and maybe we could use the fingerprint to help crack the case. This was a huge step, turning the way fingerprinting was used completely on its head and highlighting the potential of this exciting new technique. At the time, fingerprinting was quickly replacing an older system of identification that had spread across the world in the previous century. It was
3: called the Bertillon system after the developer of the system, uh, Alphonse Bertillon,
1: who was a police official in Paris, France. This is Simon Cole, professor of criminology at the University of California, Irvine. He's an expert on the history of fingerprints and other ways to identify people which start with the Bertillon system. It was an
3: anthropometric system of identification. Anthropometry is the measurement of the human body.
0: The Bertillon system involved taking 11 measurements of the body, things like head length, head width, finger length, eye color, and so forth, so that if someone got arrested and gave a false name, the police could check the head width and the finger length and so on and see if they matched the measurements of somebody already on the file and catch them in the lie. And it did work for a while. But as the Bertillon
1: system spread to Britain and America and parts of South America and India, people soon started to realize that it wasn't foolproof. It had been designed in France, after all. So it really only captured the range of physical variations of a European population. So the categories for things like hair color or eye color just didn't work as well when they were applied by the British Empire in, say, India. And that's what began to make fingerprinting appealing to those colonial officials. One of the earliest uses of fingerprinting was in colonial India, where British officials used fingerprints to ensure that people were not claiming other people's pensions. Fingerprinting made it possible to link a person to their pension record. And then people started to realize that fingerprints could also do the job of the Bertillon system, which was to keep track of known criminals. And once you've got fingerprint records of criminals, that opens the door to forensic use. And that's what happened in 1905 to solve the case in Deptford in London. So to recap, a shopkeeper has been murdered and a single fingerprint has been found at the scene. And one of the investigating officers happens to have sat on the committee that has recommended the adoption of fingerprints to identify criminals by the London police. The first thing the head of the bureau does is compare the print from the cash box to prints from the victims and the police officers to confirm that it wasn't theirs, of course. It wasn't, so he then moves on to his database, but the print appears to lead to a dead end. So this wasn't someone who had previously been arrested or convicted and was known to the fingerprint bureau. And several witnesses had seen two men leaving the shop around the time that the murder must have occurred. And they provide descriptions. And this leads to the arrest of two brothers, Alfred and Albert Stratton. And they were known to the police as troublemakers, but they'd never actually been convicted of anything. They'd never even been arrested. And they didn't have criminal records. So they were then arrested and fingerprinted. And the print from the cash box turned out to match the right thumbprint of Alfred Stratton. So the two men were then charged with murder. Busted. Absolutely. So there you go. Fingerprints, right? Everyone knows what they are, proves it was them. But fingerprints were such a new idea that most people had never even heard of them. At the trial, the head of the fingerprint department has to start right from the beginning with this new forensic science and explain it in the simplest terms. He even demonstrates on the fingers of one of the jurors. And once he's demonstrated the principles of fingerprinting, he's then able to say, and here's the fingerprint we found at the scene and he shows a great big blown-up photograph and then here are the fingerprints of one of the suspects and look, they match and he can put them next to each other and he can show that they... Here are the whorls, here are the... Exactly, the swirls and the branches and all of the different things. And this was one of the first times a trial had used fingerprint evidence in this way. The result of all this is that the jury says, yes, we do believe that we put all this evidence together, including the fingerprint evidence, but the other evidence too, they're guilty and the Stratton brothers were both found guilty
0: and hanged. In the 2012 murder of Ravish Kumra in Silicon Valley, DNA evidence found at the scene implicated three men. For two of them, D'Angelo Austin and Javier Garcia, there was also cell phone evidence placing them in the area at the time of the crime. And Austin's sister had known the victim. But what about the third man? He didn't seem to have a link to the victim, but his DNA had been found under the victim's fingernails. So what was going on with Lucas Anderson? And where did he fit in?
2: He is such a sweetheart. <laughs> He's like a complex person, but he clearly has a good heart.
0: This is Katie Worth again, the PBS reporter who worked on this story in partnership with the Marshall Project, a nonprofit journalism organization that focuses on criminal justice.
2: I reached out to his attorney, Kelly Kulik, and she's really an extraordinary person and someone who was who herself was not afraid to look at the science and look skeptically at DNA evidence. This is Kelly.
1: Hello, Kelly. It's
0: Tom here. Kelly Kulik is the deputy public defender for the county of Santa Clara in California. She was assigned to represent Lucas Anderson.
1: Okay, so at what point does the uh, the DNA evidence come into the picture then? When did that first become apparent?
4: Approximately two to four weeks into the case, the statement of facts was unsealed, and we were told there was DNA under the fingernails of the deceased victim. He had told me, like, look, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, and I said, okay, but, you know, I assume, because all of our homicides have forensic evidence, that if DNA evidence comes back to you, we're going to have a different conversation, and when it did, I went back in, and he's like, I have no, I I mean, he, he looked generally mystified.
0: The power of DNA evidence is so strong that Lucas Anderson actually started to wonder whether he committed the crime and just couldn't remember it.
4: Lucas is mentally ill. He also suffered traumatic brain injury, and he also is a raging alcoholic. So he has memory deficits from all of those factors, and so there's a part of him that started to be like— Maybe I did it, and I don't remember. And it was like, okay, so, you know, stop saying that out loud. Um, so, that, yeah, so I think, you know, all of us have this perception that, well, if your DNA is there, you must have been there. And I think he had that perception as well.
0: The defense team began to build a full portrait of Lucas's life. They knew he had previous arrests, but their research turned up something unexpected. Lucas had actually been admitted to the hospital on the very day of the Monte Sereno murder. In fact, records showed he was still in the hospital when the crime was taking place.
4: There's no way he could have been at the crime scene. It was an airtight alibi. There's no way that he physically could have been where the police and the district attorney were saying he had been. My investigator and I were able to figure out that... What we call a non emergency call, so not a 911 emergency call, but a 311 non emergency call had been made from a store where Lucas was bothering people. We learned that an ambulance had taken him, so we got those records. So we got all the records, and then we tracked down all the people who saw him that night, interviewed them, and confirmed every step of the alibi along the way.
0: Kelly and her team met with the district attorney and presented Lucas's alibi, showing he was never at the scene of the crime, even if his DNA was. Kelly wasn't sure how this DNA mix-up could have happened, but she did discover a physical link between the hospital and the crime scene that seemed like the most plausible place for a DNA transfer.
4: Lucas was intoxicated on the night of when the crime happens, and he's so intoxicated, an ambulance had to transfer him to the hospital for that night. The ambulance that took Lucas is the same ambulance that then responded to the homicide and took possession of the dead body, um, the crime victim there.
0: So that ambulance was the link between Lucas and, a few hours later, the crime scene. Somehow, his DNA was left in the ambulance and transferred to the victim's body. One explanation is that the DNA was transferred on a pulse oximeter, which is a piece of equipment that gets put on your finger to measure your vital signs. But there's a wide range of other possibilities.
4: Could it be the ambulance guy's uniforms? Could it be the gurney? Could it, it could be anything. So I, I think the end answer is we know the location. Do we know specifically how it transferred? I don't think that we'll ever know.
0: The case against Lucas Anderson at that point unraveled very quickly, and the district attorney dropped the charges against him. He was released after spending nearly six months in jail. For many people involved in the case, including Kelly Kulik, this was the first time they had encountered the idea that DNA could be transferred so easily from one place to another. But has that changed anything about the way DNA evidence is treated?
4: first question is should it? Yes. Um, Has it? I think that's going to be slower. The problem is, is that the legal world doesn't like change. Uh, You know, science and technology moves fast, whereas the legal world likes tradition and it relies on precedent. We used to make a reference, which I mean, it's a little gross, but it's, you used to have to have buckets of blood. You used to have to have a lot of DNA to do DNA testing. And we were dealing with single source, meaning one person's DNA. The technology has gotten so good, which is amazing, but now you're picking up such low levels of DNA, and while the technology is running fast, the ability for us to interpret it, in particular in a forensic courtroom setting, is way behind.
1: The Lucas Anderson case isn't the first time that forensic evidence has made people jump to conclusions. Back when fingerprints were first introduced, everyone just accepted the idea that they're unique to each individual. And they probably are. But it turns out that for nearly a century, nobody really questioned just how reliable fingerprinting is. The correct question to ask
3: was, could a print left by me be mistaken for
1: a print left by somebody else in the world. That's our fingerprint expert, Simon Cole, again. A few years ago, he and several other researchers went to look for studies on the accuracy of fingerprint analysis, but they couldn't find any.
3: People just said all fingerprints are unique. That's all you need to know. It was just simply assumed that it was 100% accurate based on the claim
1: that all fingerprints patterns are unique. They brought this to the attention of the forensic science community, and that prompted researchers in 2011 to take a much closer look at the accuracy of fingerprints. And what they found was surprising. It turned out that fingerprint examiners made false positive errors, saying two prints match when in fact they don't, in about one in a thousand cases. And they made false negative errors, saying two prints don't match when in fact they do, in about
0: one in 20 cases. Given the hundreds of thousands of cases in which fingerprints have been used, that means there's a good chance that some innocent people must have been found guilty, and a lot more guilty people must have gone free.
1: A century of certainty about the infallibility of fingerprint evidence suddenly looked rather shaky, and this happened soon after a new forensic technology, DNA profiling, had appeared on the scene. Here's Simon Cole again.
3: I think there are a lot of parallels between the uh, shift from the Bertillon system to fingerprinting and the current dynamic between fingerprinting and DNA typing. One thing is this sort of impulse to cut down the
1: old while building up the new. And amid the enthusiasm to embrace the new technique, whether it's fingerprints then or DNA now, we tend to overlook its flaws. But we've now started to realise that DNA profiling has pitfalls too.
5: Well, now it's possible to detect what's called touch DNA.
1: This is William Thompson, a professor emeritus at the University of California, Irvine, who specialises in the law, science and social science of forensic evidence.
5: So, merely by touching an item, you can uh, leave enough cellular material that a DNA profile can be obtained. So, what sort of thing? If I shake someone's
1: hand, uh, if I pick up a glass, or I use the same, I don't know, coin or banknote to someone, I can end up transferring DNA.
5: Yes, yes, all of those. I mean, interestingly, some people seem to shed a lot more DNA than others, and so so you can have circumstances where. I'll shake your hand, you'll touch some item, and my DNA will end up on that item in in larger quantities than your DNA.
1: So given that it's all become much more sensitive, has the forensic and legal use of DNA evidence kept up with these technological changes?
5: We have had a long history of people failing to recognize limitations, overstating findings, and so on, that... Seems to be promoted by the institutional culture of forensic science in ways that are that are difficult to prevent, and yes, yes, a, t- a tendency to talk about DNA evidence as if it's a definitive proof without acknowledging things can sometimes go wrong. Do you see any sign of that changing? I think that the institutions that we have created to do forensic science in the United States, and probably also in in uh, in the UK and and Europe are kind of conducive to the attitude I've described. I think that these technologies are introduced by laboratories largely that are run by law enforcement agencies or prosecutorial agencies whose goal it is to convict people. And there's an institutional structure that favors a tendency to rush technology into court before it's adequately tested and to not acknowledge any limitations revealed by such testing.
1: The problem is that despite its name, forensic science often isn't really very scientific. It took more than a century
5: for anyone to check the reliability of fingerprint evidence in a rigorous way. I'm suggesting that was at least in part because this was a technique that proved extremely useful for law enforcement and in criminal prosecutions and that the people who were using it for those purposes really did not care to look too deeply into what might be wrong with it or what the limitations might be. So are we...
1: Are we in danger of making the same mistake again with DNA? Have we, in fact, made the same mistake with DNA?
5: Yes, I think we
0: have. I think we have. Studies have found that other forensic science techniques, like the analysis of bite marks and hair and blood spatter, are also a lot less reliable than people had assumed they were. So I guess the question, Tom, is whether in the future we're going to find out that DNA evidence isn't that reliable either.
1: Well, DNA profiling is different from fingerprints or bite mark analysis, I think, because it's actually real science and it was only later applied to forensics. So its scientific foundations are really solid. I don't think we're going to find out that they're not. The problem we're running up against with DNA profiling is it's too precise. It's too good. It's so sensitive. Your DNA could be
0: detected even in places you've never been. I wonder where these TV shows like CSI fit in here, because that's where most people are getting their understanding of forensic science from, and I feel like it might be a little bit misleading.
1: Right. In real life, the DNA lab isn't actually next door to the police chief's office, and DNA analysis really takes longer than a 30-second montage with pounding music. But the perception that it's like that is a real problem. Here's Kelly Kulik again.
4: I think we all suffer from some of these shows that really present evidence in a dangerous way. I think people think that, you know, the science is conclusive and it wraps up in about 10 minutes.
0: And there are other things besides DNA that are hard to understand, things like statistics. So one option to help counter this is you could have neutral experts come in and give all the jurors tutorials about DNA and statistics and everything. And another is that you could only pick jurors who have technical backgrounds, but then that's not a jury of your peers, which is how a trial by jury is supposed to work. The whole thing's really difficult.
4: We've got complicated science that we're expecting people to be able to interpret on a level that has really dire consequences. I mean, DNA is complex science. We, we try to simplify it for juries, but it is complex.
0: Because of DNA's solid scientific foundations, people are inclined to assume it's infallible. So investigators and judges need to be even more aware of the problems that can arise when you're using it as a forensic science.
4: We really need to put it back on the courts, and the courts are gatekeepers. Number one, they've got to learn the science. Uh, Many of our judges, I don't think, understand. I think our prosecutors also have to have the integrity and the ethics to know what evidence should be coming in when their experts are going too far. And it's also on our scientists. Look, you can't go out on a limb that's not grounded in peer-reviewed, data-driven evidence. I think sometimes our experts become advocates as opposed to scientists, and I think that's when we all lose.
1: And that means something like the Lucas Anderson case could very easily happen again.
4: Oh, it's happening all the time, absolutely. This isn't even could happen again. I mean, I think that we know that DNA moves. It moves between people, it moves between objects, it moves freely, and low quantities move, and now we're picking it up. And so I think it's always going to be a question of, is this DNA part of a crime scene, or was it the background DNA of this scene before the crime happened? That's always going to be a question now.
0: There's a clear historical pattern here. We have a tendency to assume that new forensic tools are infallible. We did it with fingerprints, and now we're doing it with DNA. So it would be great if we could all be more aware of DNA's shortcomings. It's tempting to think of DNA profiling
1: like a sort of super-powered fingerprint that can place someone at the scene of a crime, which it is. But DNA is different from fingerprinting in some very important ways, and it's not just that it can move around in a way that fingerprints can't. Unlike a fingerprint which says nothing about your physical appearance or your ethnicity, DNA also provides a complete genetic description of you and indeed your close relatives. And this opens the way
0: to new investigative techniques. And there's also more data available because millions of people are voluntarily DNA profiling themselves with these consumer genetics companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. People do it so they can identify health risks and learn about their family origins. These databases are now being used in criminal cases too. It's exactly the technology that was used in the case of the Golden State Killer last year. He'd committed at least 13 murders and 50 rapes in the 1970s and 80s, but he was never caught. However, his DNA from the crime scenes had been kept on file, and police found matches with the DNA samples that some of his distant relatives had submitted to a genealogy database. And since then, there have
1: been another 60 or so cold cases where suspects, and in some cases victims, have been identified using this kind of public database. But there's now a big debate about whether law enforcement agencies should be allowed to access this kind of information. We're probably going to see years of legal battles as law enforcement agencies use court orders to gain access to the big genealogy databases.
0: The really eye-opening thing for me here is this idea that I'm leaving DNA everywhere I go, And at this point, I feel like odds are at some point I'm going to be implicated in a murder case. (laughs) It's going to walk
1: to to a crime scene. They're going to go, hey, we recognize this.
0: Yeah, it's going to get transferred somehow. Somebody touches something that touches something else, and suddenly I'm at the crime scene. At this point, it seems like a good possibility that's going to happen. The other thing I would say is if you're you're a juror, and I've been a juror on a murder trial before. I didn't use DNA evidence. But if I were a juror on a trial again, I think I would be— acutely aware of the fact that DNA could be so easily transferred and that it is not definitive proof of guilt. So just like fingerprints now seem a bit old-fashioned
1: and you need a bit more supporting evidence to get a conviction, it seems like we need to change our attitude towards DNA too. The point is that a DNA sample is much more than a fingerprint. It contains all of this personal information. And that has benefits, for example, in solving cold cases, but it also has drawbacks as the case of Lucas Anderson shows. And if we persist in thinking of DNA like an infallible fingerprint, we're going to be blind to the dangers.
2: DNA has a life beyond us. Like, we leave a trail of DNA behind us everywhere we go. And then that DNA then moves. We have to think about all the ways that this DNA might have arrived here. If the only evidence we have is DNA, I don't think that that is strong enough to convict someone. I think you need a preponderance of evidence, and it can't only be dependent on DNA.
1: I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ
0: Raphael. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merrick Jacob, technical director at Slate. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Secret History of the Future. If you
1: haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too.